Hello and welcome to the latest episode of TPA Talks. This week we are sitting down with Simon Clark, the Director of Forest. Forest is Britain's leading smokers' rights group. We'll be talking about the latest developments in tobacco regulation, taxation, Sunak smoking ban and much more. We hope you enjoy the episode. Simon, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, just to kick things off and for the benefit of people who might not have come across for us before, um, I wonder if you'd like to just sort of talk about sort of um, you know, a bit of the history of the group, exactly what it is you campaign for, that kind of thing. Yes, well, Forest was set up in 1979, so we're already 44 years old. And we were set up really as uh, opposition to ASH, Action Smoking and Health, mm. which was set up in 1972. Now, of course, back in the 70s, there were very few restrictions on smoking, but the war on tobacco was just beginning to start. So Forrest was really sort of in at the beginning. Now, some people have said to me, oh, Forrest... Um, it's probably the most, least successful campaign group in history, uh, given all the sort of defeats, if you like, mm. that we've suffered over the years. But I would actually argue that we're still here fighting. We stand up for freedom of choice and personal responsibility. We've never said smoking is a good thing. We've never encouraged anybody to smoke. In fact, of the four directors of Forest, three have been non-smokers. I'm a non-smoker. Mm. Um, but I feel very strongly about this issue because I believe that once you're an adult, you should be allowed to make your own informed choices whether it's about smoking, whether it's about drinking alcohol, whether it's eating junk food, there's a whole raft of issues there. And freedom of choice and personal responsibility, I think, are very important principles in life. So that's basically what we support and what we try and advocate. So at that point, sort of uh, that, you know, three out of four directors haven't, haven't been smokers and what have you, do you think that's sort of the... Uh... Um, the thing that really drew you to the organisation, the individual responsibility and freedom of choice arguments? Well, I was aware of Forrest um, even when I was uh, a student and I ran a student newspaper in the early 80s and I actually interviewed the very first director of Forrest, St uh, Stephen Ayres. And in the late 80s, I was running a group called the Media Monitoring Unit, which monitored uh, the BBC for political bias, can you believe it? <laughs> Um, and we set up a little sort of commercial uh, wing of that. And I produced a report um, which studied the media uh, coverage of smoking-related issues. And all the things that we complain about now, essentially ash get it all their own way and the public health lobby and the anti-smoking lobby uh, get an inordinate uh, amount of coverage compared to us, that was happening 30 years ago. Mm. So I'd all, I was already very interested in the subject. And when the uh, job came up, I'm slightly ashamed to say uh, I've been director of Forest now for uh, 24 years, which um, might show a complete lack of uh, ambition. But when I started, I actually only intended to do it for two or three years. Mm. I was working in Edinburgh at the time, wanted to move back to London. And I thought, come down, do the Forest job for a few years, move on and do something else. Sure. 
But what happened was I actually got sucked into it more and more and more. Of course, we had the campaign against the smoking ban, which lasted for three, four years before the ban actually came in. And ever since, and that was back in 2007 when the law was actually enacted. But since then, we've had just a stream of, uh, of legislation. We've had a ban on tobacco vending machines. We've had a, a ban on the display of tobacco. Of course, we have had uh, plain packaging introduced. I mean, that was a three-year campaign for us trying to stop plain packaging. Um, we've had the ban on mental cigarettes, and now we've got Rishi Sunak talking about raising the age of sale by one year every year until nobody can legally buy cigarettes. So it's, it's gone on, you know, it's been one thing after another, and there's not been one moment when I thought, actually, I want to back off. Uh, I don't want to fight <clears> this <throat> next one. And one of the things um, that got me really invested in Forest was in my very first year, I was invited to a conference in Seville um, of a lot of other smokers' rights groups from around Europe. And I must confess, I wasn't really looking forward to going. But when I got there, what I actually met were all these very decent, charming people from all over Europe, from about 12, 13, 14 countries. And they were just ordinary people from all walks of life, and they just happened to smoke. And they were bemused why governments around the continent were trying to forced them to stop. Mm. I mean, they understood the health risks. There were no doubt about the health risks, but they enjoyed smoking. And again, over the years, I've met so many people who enjoy smoking, and we've done, you know, we've commissioned research from um, independent, an independent body, uh, and they came out with a report called The Pleasure of Smoking, the, the views of confirmed smokers, essentially smokers who don't want to give up. And again, what comes across over and over again is that there's a great many people out there who enjoy smoking. They get pleasure from smoking. Yeah. They get comfort from smoking. But are you allowed to say that these days? I mean, yeah. everybody shies away and says, oh, no, no, smoking is a dirty, disgusting habit. Nobody would take up smoking uh, uh, you know, unless they were hopelessly addicted to it. But there are people who are addicted to smoking. But at the end of the day... There are a lot of people who take a great deal of pleasure. These people, generally speaking, don't have a voice. Forest, to a certain extent, is the only group in this country. And indeed, I mean, all those groups I mentioned uh, around the continent, they've all folded um, through lack of, uh, lack of money. Forest is probably the only group in the world that actually is a sort of single-issue uh, pressure group representing people who enjoy smoking. And I say, we go beyond that. To us, it's not just about smoking. It's about other issues as well. Essentially, it's government interfering in our lives. You know, way beyond what might have been considered 30, 40 years ago. I mean, it's incredible how government has changed in the last sort of 50 years. Uh, I mean, public health used to be about things like tuberculosis or, you know, uh, things that the public had no choice over. Mm. Nowadays, it's all about our private health. Because if you take up smoking, you know the health risk. That's got nothing to do with government at all. It's your own private um, you know, risk that you're taking on. I often say I don't smoke, but I am overweight. Technically, I'm morbidly obese, according to my doctor. <laughs> now, I know I should lose weight. Of course, I, I know I should lose weight. But the thing is, I don't want the government forcing me to lose weight. Mm -hmm. I don't want the government banning certain types of junk food in order to force me to lose weight or restricting the amount of alcohol um, I drink because, you know, that puts on weight as well. Again, it's nothing to do with government. It's my responsibility. And if I croak because uh, it, I haven't looked after myself, that's my lookout.
I mean, there's some really interesting points there, uh, particularly on sort of the uh, reference sort of European groups and um, the rollback of smokers' rights, sort of not just here, but in, on the continent. Um, but just to pick up a point on the um, indoor smoking ban when that came in in 2007, um, could you just give us a sense of how you saw the th saw things going at that point? Um, that was obviously sort of a very pivotal moment. Um, the the probably the most radical change in smoking policy mm -hmm. um, at that point. Um, what was your sense feeling at the time about, was that sort of expected to be the end of the road? Did you envisage all of the subsequent regulations that we've had since then? Um, and do you think sort of things like the impact on pubs that were warned about at the time, do you think that's come to fruition? Mm. Well, first of all, we have to go back to 1998 when uh, Ash, for example, were campaigning for more um, smoke-free areas in, in restaurants. Mm. And that was perfectly understandable. We understood why there were a lot of people who went out to a restaurant and they didn't want to be sitting there with smoke sort of drifting across. And so we were totally in support of uh, more smoke-free zones. But what we said was, it's not for the government to legislate on this, it's all about the actual um, restaurateur or the publican, the, you know, the, the proprietor. These are private businesses. Again, nothing to do with, uh, with government. It's down to individual private businesses. And what we were seeing at the time was a lot of restaurants were going non-smoking voluntarily because there was custom demand for non-smoking restaurants. Pubs were another matter. Uh, there was no public demand for a comprehensive ban on smoking in pubs. And in fact, when the uh, year before the ban was actually enacted, we were doing polls. And what we were finding was that perhaps 30% of the general public wanted a complete ban on smoking. But the majority actually wanted some form of compromise. They wanted perhaps separate smoking rooms. And, you know, we would have been happy with separate smoking rooms if we had to let, uh, have legislation. We were against legislation. But actually for several years when we were fighting the smoking ban, yeah, we thought we were doing pretty well. Um, there was an attempt, for example, around about 2002, 2003, there was an attempt uh, both in London and Liverpool. They wanted to unilaterally uh, have smoking banned in enclosed uh, indoor public places. Mm. Um, but we fought that off. And one of the ways we actually fought it off was that in 2003, um, there was a study published in America um, that actually showed pretty conclusively that the risks of passive smoking um, were far less than were perceived, were perceived, was perceived mm. to be the case. Because of course, passive smoking uh, was the big issue that the anti-smoking lobby grasped. They said, look, it's all right if you want to risk your own health, but you cannot risk the health of the non-smokers around you. But at that time, there'd only been perhaps half a dozen cases where, uh, for example, employees perhaps working in a mm -hmm. casino where they would be exposed day after day to, uh, to secondhand smoke. Um, there are only half a dozen uh, cases uh, ever came to court, and every single one lost. There were a few out-of-court settlements because, of course, people, uh, some empl employers decided, well, it's better to settle out of court mm -hmm. rather than go through a potentially expensive law case. But all the ones that actually came to court in this country, they all failed through lack of evidence. I mean, to prove that somebody has actually got in, ill and even died through breathing somebody else's uh, smoke, it's almost impossible. So we were winning the passive smoking argument. I mean, John Reid, who was uh, Labour Health Secretary at that time, 
Um, we had a, a, a private meeting with him and with his uh, senior advisor, and he actually seemed to agree with us uh, that uh, that the evidence on passive smoking was actually pretty flimsy. Now, John Reed was an interesting character because he represented one of the poorest constituencies in uh, not just Scotland, but the UK. And there was an occasion around about 2004 where he gave a speech in which he said, look, um, if you're a single, young single mother living on a sink estate, um, then a cigarette may be one of the few pleasures you have during the day. Now, of course, the public health lobby pounced and said, how dare you say that? But to me, that sums up that a lot of the anti-smoking campaigners are actually middle-class do-gooders. This is actually a class war because the vast majority um, of smokers these days are from lower socioeconomic groups. They're perfectly well-educated about the health risks of smoking. So John Reed tried to find a compromise. And what the compromise he came up with was that uh, pubs that don't serve food would be exempt from the ban. And also, all private members' clubs would be exempt from the ban, including, of course, working men's clubs. And absolutely right, too, because why should the government dictate to a private members' club what their policy on, on smoking should be? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, if the majority of members of a private club don't want people to smoke on their premises, they can vote for that. Yeah. So that was the compromise that John Reid um, suggested and uh, put into the Labour manifesto in 2005. But, of course, as soon as the election was out of the way, he was replaced as uh, health secretary with uh, Patricia Hewitt. She had a different agenda. She was still under a lot of pressure from the uh, anti-smoking lobby. And, of course, they Labour went back on their manifesto commitment. Mm. Um, but I have to say, when John Reid was still health secretary, we had what was one of the, well, the best day of my working life uh, when uh, we, had, we, we were doing a fringe meeting down in Brighton where the Labour conference was taking place in 2004. So our campaign was going full steam ahead at the time. And David Hockney uh, agreed to come down and speak at our meeting. And he first of all went on the Today programme and then the BBC One breakfast programme uh, arguing uh, against uh, a smoking ban. He accused uh, the Labour junior health minister of being boring and dreary. Um, he held uh, up a poster saying, we've all got to die sometime. He turned up in Brighton and all the broadsheets wanted to do a one-to-one -one interview with him. Hmm. So we were taking him from one sort of venue to the next to be interviewed. And uh, it was just, uh, just a, a fantastic day. And in the evening, uh, we went to dinner, took him to dinner. And the Sunday Times sent somebody down to interview him for that as well. Of course, next day's newspapers had all Hockney's comments. And to be absolutely fair to him, he's 86 now. Mm. And even in the last week, he was writing an article for the uh, Sunday Times mm. saying why this latest policy uh, announced by the government is so ludicrous. Again, he doesn't uh, you know, dispute that there are health risks associated with smoking. But what he points out, that for his generation, I say he's 86 now, and he smokes, you know, he's, he's a heavy smoker. Um, he says he smokes 20 a day and 10 in the evening. Um, but he, he's pointed out he lived in uh, California for many, many years. And he's got a lot of friends in America, New York as well. And he said that that generation, most of them are on things like Prozac. He says, to a certain extent, David Hockney has always said he smokes almost to medicate himself. It's a, it's a form of relaxation. Now, again, 
Who in their right mind is going to say to somebody like Hockney or anybody else, no, we actually think we know better than you as to how you get through your life. And we think your life would be much better if you gave up smoking, if you cut down on alcohol or whatever it might be. No, only ourselves. We know how best to get through our lives. And this is what governments cannot understand. And yeah, you asked about, you know, did we think this would continue after the smoking ban? I'm afraid yes. Because I say we won't go back to 1998 when Ash were merely calling for more uh, smoke-free zones and restaurants, and they said that's all we want. Well, a few years later, they were supporting a comprehensive ban on smoking every single pub, bar, and restaurant and working men's club in the country. So we always knew it was never going to stop there. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, sort of the um, the smoking ban that Sunak is proposing um, that he announced at his his party conference. Um, lifting the age that you can purchase tobacco by one year every year. Um, would you have ever imagined that uh, sort of after 13 years of conservative governments that this would be effectively an outright ban on cigarettes that, that was being pushed by a conservative prime minister? I find it unbelievable. I mean, Forrest is non-party political, but I've never made any secret of the fact that I'm a conservative voter. Never been a member of the party, but I'm a conservative voter. I will not vote for them again if this gets pushed through. I mean, I do understand this is just one uh, issue. And for many people, it's perhaps quite a minor issue. I mean, I think they've been quite clever because, of course, uh, all uh, it's not going to affect any existing smoker. Uh, it only affects people who are um, age 14 on the 1st of January 2009, I think. And it's not going to be introduced until 2027. So by having this incremental increase one year every year, they're hoping that people won't fight back against it because the sort of people who are going to fight against it, it's not going to affect them directly. But uh, for a Conservative Prime Minister, I would have to question how Conservative he actually is to introduce something like this. Um, I mean, Boris Johnson, of course, and Liz Truss have both said, uh, well, Liz Truss has said she'll vote against it. Boris is no longer an MP, but he came out with an article in the Daily Mail uh, attacking it. Uh, I would hope that there will be a substantial number of Conservative MPs who will vote against this because there is no way that this is a Conservative policy. I mean, only in April, when the Junior Health Minister Neil O'Brien gave a speech at Policy Exchange um, and giving essentially the government's response to the Khan Review, which came out mm. last year. The Khan Review was commissioned by Sajid Javid when he was Health Secretary. And it was published in June last year. And it came up with this exact policy, raising the age of sale by one year every year until no one can legally yeah. buy. Now, it wasn't an original idea. They've nicked it from New Zealand. Mm. Now, even in New Zealand, although the law has been passed, as far as I understand, it won't, again, it won't sort of start affecting anybody until 2027. So nobody has any idea what the impact is going to be. A lot of us suspect that it will fuel the black market because you're not going to stop young people from smoking. That's what they want to do. They will simply find, just as they find they're going to access illegal drugs, they'll have no problem at all, you know, accessing cigarettes if that's what they want to do. But the other bizarre thing is to introduce this policy at this particular time is that smoking rates in all age categories, including teenagers, including young adults, they're at their lowest ever recorded level. Now, that has happened over a period of 30, 40 years. 
And it is interesting that the biggest drop in smoking rates in this country happened from the mid-70s through to the early 90s, when there were virtually no restrictions on smoking at all. It happened through education. Because through the, obviously, the, the health risks of smoking were actually known before the, the Second World War. People used to refer to cigarettes as, as uh, coffin sticks. Um, but the actual evidence uh, began to appear in the 50s, yeah. particularly in relation to lung cancer, where there was a clear correlation. Sure. A lot of these other smoking-related diseases, the correlation is not so clear because they're multifactorial diseases. They might be hereditary as well. But clearly with lung cancer, there was a clear sort of correlation with about 80% of lung cancer sufferers being smokers or having been smokers. Um, and uh, so it was education. People began to understand the health risks. And yeah. either they quit smoking with their own volition or they didn't take up smoking in the first place. But going back to your original question, so I veered off a bit, but going back <laughs> to Rishi Sunak, yeah, I think it's the most non-conservative policy. And what is so cynical about it, to the best of my knowledge, Rishi Sunak has never shown the slightest interest in the smoking debate. I'm not aware of him ever commenting on it. Suddenly, here we are, a year or so out from an election. He's at a party conference. He knows he's going to get stick for abandoning uh, HS2. So he needs to produce something, a rabbit from the hat. And what's the easiest thing to do? You pick on one of the weakest minority groups in, uh, in society, and that happens to be smokers. Because... You know, with, with a few honourable exceptions, very few people do stand up to support smokers. Mm. They're an easy target. So Rishi Sunak has basically fired a shotgun at a an easy target, thinking he will uh, no doubt get a bit of kudos from it. Well, as far as I can see, the polls haven't moved. Mm. Uh, so there's not been any bounce because most people do not care. Ash will produce uh, polls that say 70% of the, the general public um, support this. Well, 70% of the general public are not smokers. In fact, um, what, 85% of the general public uh, are not yeah. smokers. Why would they care? You could even argue uh, that why would existing smokers care? Not going to mm. affect them. But you see, we've done polls as well, which when you give people a list of, let's say, 10 topical issues or current issues and say, you know, prioritise these, and we throw in tackling smoking, and this will be along with, you know, improving the NHS or, you know, uh, defending the, the, the nation um, or things like, you know, building infrastructure. Yeah. And mm. every single time, because we've asked this question over many, many years, every single time tackling smoking comes, if not bottom, then second bottom, along with uh, tackling alcohol misuse and tackling obesity. Mm. Those three issues are important because it shows that the general public, I believe, considers them to be uh, personal issues, not issues that the government should interfere in. Mm. And what is so annoying, just going back to Neil O'Brien's speech in, in April when he was responding to the Khan Review, which he appeared to kick the Khan Review into touch and all Khan's recommendations. And what he actually said was how important personal responsibility was to the mm. government. And now here we are five months later, and they're just simply throwing that out. Personal responsibility no, ma no, no, no longer matters. Freedom of choice for adults no longer matters. Yeah. Because you are infantilizing the nation. You're saying to somebody, legally at 18, right, legally you're an adult. You know, you've been able to have sex legally since you were 16. You've been able to drive a car legally since you were 17. Join the army at 17, at 18. You can go into a shop and buy alcohol. 
and you've been able to uh, buy tobacco. Now, when they raised the age of sale of tobacco from 16 to 18, uh, back in about 2007, 2008, we supported that because we thought it was perfectly reasonable to bring tobacco into line with uh, alcohol. But to raise it, and there was talk about raising it to 21 to bring it in line with uh, America. And we said no, because you are an adult. You might be a young adult, but you are still an adult. And we need to treat people like adults. If you don't treat adults as adults, they're going to behave like children. Plus, also, we create a society in which people increasingly look to government to make decisions over their own lives. Now, how can that... I mean, my children now are both in their, their mid-20s. But... You know, when they grow up and become adult, I want them at the age of 18 to be confident enough and well-informed enough to make their own decisions about life. And if they choose to smoke, that is a matter for them. I mean, it might be a wrong decision or a bad decision, but it's a decision. And we have to be free in a free society to make bad decisions. That's what you consider it to be. I say a lot of people don't consider smoking to be a bad decision because it's given them so much enjoyment over the years. But the point is, it's not for government to dictate on every, every single issue what is a good decision, what is a bad decision. And when you think, and this is, I'm afraid, I show my age now um, in terms of my cynicism with, with politicians. I just look at politicians and I think... How dare you tell me how to live my life? Mm. You can't even run a blooming parliament properly. I mean, what a mess that we've had over the last X number of years. Mm. And for them to tell us how to live our lives, I just think is absolutely outrageous. So, I mean, we're going to fight. I mean, people will say this is done and dusted. Uh, Rishi Sunak has the support of Labour. Of course he has the support of Labour. Labour more than happy. They were introduced, they introduced the... Um, uh, the smoking ban. They were the ones who legislated for the display ban, although it was the Tories under the coalition government who actually introduced it, but it was Labour who originally introduced the legislation. So, of course, Labour will support it. But a lot of Conservative MPs need to be asking themselves very closely, should I really be voting for this? And is it a good look for a Conservative Prime Minister to be relying on the votes of the main opposition party in order to get a piece of legislation through? They should be waiting to see what the outcome of the policy is in New Zealand, even if it takes a few years, because we're, it's going to have a big impact on um, illicit trade in this country. Black marketeers will be rubbing their hands. And also, black market marketeers don't care who they sell to. They'll happily sell to children. So you lose control of the market. That's the point. And, uh, you know, it's an absolutely crazy decision. Um, people think it's a done deal, but we're certainly going to be going all guns blazing over the next few months because we think it's a really serious issue. And if Conservative MPs vote for it, then I, I, think, it's, uh, I think it says a lot about what modern conservative, conservatism stands for. I mean, obviously, sort of uh, over the years and and still, um, taxation has been used as a way to dissuade people from either continuing to smoke or taking up the habit. Um, and tobacco taxes raised, I think, ten billion pounds last year, um, and it's due to increase um, in in the next year. Um, and indeed, we uh, we at the TPA have looked at uh, we we produced a paper looking at the long term challenges to the tax system, and tobacco taxes were were one of those that we looked at. Um, many people are going to be sort of wondering where's the lost revenue going to come from? Um, what are the government going to do to try and replace that? What what are your thoughts on that? Well, the revenue from tobacco has stayed fairly consistent over the last ten years or so, ten 
billion pounds a year, plus I think a couple of uh, billion pounds in VAT. So about 12 billion pounds altogether. Um, I suppose what the government does each year is it it, it makes a, a value judgment. Uh, it says it wants to reduce smoking rates. They know that if they lose smokers, they're going to lose revenue. So of course they put up tax. At the same time, they say they're putting up tax to try and deter people from either starting smoke in the first place um, or, you know, encourage them to, to quit because of the cost. I mean, at the moment, an average pack of 20 cigarettes, 85% uh, of the cost is tax. I mean, I think that's uh, pretty outrageous, frankly. I mean, nobody, uh, you know, everybody accepts that tobacco is potentially um, uh, a very harmful, uh, smoking tobacco is potentially a very harmful uh, thing to do. But to use taxation as a form of social engineering, which essentially is what's happening, I think is, is, is quite wrong. And I think it does discriminate against a uh, substantial minority of the population because, okay, smoking rates have been coming down year by year uh, for the last 50 years, but still about 13% of the adult population in England. That's not a, an insubstantial number of people. But what's important is the majority of smokers are from lower socioeconomic groups. Now, one of the biggest um, hypocritical things I can think of is that the anti-smoking lobby, the public health lobby, they're constantly going, tax, you know, put tax up on, on tobacco. Keep pushing it. Put it one, one uh, I think there's, I can't remember who it was the other day, but they want uh, um, an individual cigarette to cost one pound. So essentially a pack of cigarettes would, would cost 20 pounds. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the moment, premium brands are up, what, about £15, something like mm. that. Um, cheaper brands you, you are available. But they, they're trying to push uh, the price of tobacco up so much that it will almost become impossible for people to afford mm. uh, their habit. But, of course, that's not how life actually works. People find ways to get yes. cheaper tobacco. Yep. That's where the black market comes in, where you can get cigarettes at least half the you know the, the legitimate retail price at least half um obviously a lot of counterfeit cigarettes are available as well now the problem with counterfeit cigarettes we don't know where they've come from we don't know what's in them yep. so potentially they're even more uh, potentially harmful than uh the cigarettes that are for sale which mm. have been through testing they've been produced in you know clean factories um and it's very dangerous to push people towards the black market, but the hypocrisy comes in where people try and push up the uh, tax, the duty on tobacco to make them even more expensive. And that discriminates against people from low on lower incomes. Then they complain that smoking, not the tax on tobacco, but it's smoking that forces more people into poverty. But at the same time, they're saying people are addicted and can't, once you're addicted, you can't get off. Well, they can't have it both ways. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they can't be arguing. Everybody's so addicted, they can't get off smoking. Um, but they've got to stop smoking because it's too expensive for them. And they keep on smoking. They're pushing themselves into poverty. I mean, this is just all completely mixed up. And, of course, other arguments they, they, they'll use, they'll say, oh, you know, if you gave up smoking, um, you could that would save you £2,000 a year. You could enjoy a holiday. Well... Again, it's not for government or for the public health lobby to tell people how to spend their own money. Mm. You know, if somebody chooses to smoke every day because they get enjoyment from smoking, maybe to them that's more important 
than spending £2,000 on a one or two week holiday each yeah. year. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't read people's minds and I'm not going to pretend I know how, the, how people think. But what I am saying is it's not for government or the public health lobby to try and shame people to give up smoking um, by saying, ah, oh, but you could spend your money much better in other ways. Mm. I say, I, I do think perhaps hardcore smokers have addictive personalities. And if it wasn't uh, smoking, it could well be something else I'd spend sure. that money on. We touched on it sort of briefly earlier, um, the uh, uh, vapes and e-cigarettes. Um, and the NHS describes them as one of the most effective, effective tools for quitting smoking. Um, but there's, at the same time, there's also sort of plenty of talk, plenty of talk about um, banning disposable vapes, banning flavours, introducing new taxes. Um, do you think that's where the sort of next battles are going to be? Um, and how do you see those debates going? Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, we keep saying to vaping advocates, look, you need to support smokers and you need to stand up and um, oppose uh, smoking bans. You need to oppose raising the age of sale. All these things that are targeted at smokers. Don't throw smokers under a bus because when, when smokers are reduced to a tiny rump in society, which I think will take a lot longer than, than people think, um, but when that does happen, they're clearly going to turn on vapors and vaping because the point is, it goes back to this argument, they're always looking for the next logical thing. Even with vaping, all the people who are currently advocating vaping, particularly within the public health community, they're all, they all see it as a short-term um, way to quit smoking. Mm -hmm. So they will support it as long as it's purely a quit-smoking aid. And then after a period of time, they think you should quit vaping as well mm -hmm. because... What they don't like, I mean, we all accept that um, smoking is more harmful than vaping because you're in, you know, you're ingesting smoke and tar and so on. Um, and at the moment, the evidence on e-cigarettes seems pretty benign that mm. clearly uh, on current evidence may change in 30, 40, 50 years time. Who knows? But on current evidence, there's absolutely no reason to crack down on uh, vaping, certainly not for adults. I think with children, it's a slightly different matter. Um, but no, I, I'm pleased that the government um, is pretty moderate on vaping and wants to encourage, uh, as long as there's no coercion involved, is, mm. if it's all about educating uh, the consumer and uh, informing the consumer about the relative risks of these next different nicotine mm. products, I have absolutely no problem with that at all. It's when you get coercion and people are sort of forced to, to move in a certain direction. That's, it, it's the bullying that can be involved sometimes. But no, e-cigarettes, I think, have been a fantastically positive uh, innovation over the last, what, 15 uh, years or so. Um, and if the government just stuck to what it said in April, that it was going to hand out a million free vape kits to smokers who wanted to quit, um, and it was going to sort of nudge people towards vaping. But it, as far as we knew then, there was no talk about raising the age of sale uh, and cracking down on smoking even more. We'd have been perfectly happy with that because that seemed to be a very reasonable uh, approach to take. In terms of disposable vapes, it's funny because 10 years ago with e-cigarettes, one of the things that was clear to us is that the reason a lot of smokers didn't want to switch is because... Although you did have the, um, these very cheap things that looked like a cigarette, but they were mm. pretty dreadful, yeah. and uh, <clears throat> uh, no serious vapor wanted to use them. 
But it was clear that what was off-putting to a lot of smokers is that e-cigarettes of the time were just too complicated. There was, you know, talk about batteries and talk about changing coils. And then there was numerous flavours, but you had to, you were constantly changing these flavours. That was so complicated. I mean, I draw a parallel between uh, the pipe and the cigarette. Hmm. One of the reasons the cigarette was such a phenomenon in the early 20th century, after they began to be mass manufactured uh, in the late 19th century, yeah. is because the cigarette was the most simple thing for a consumer to use. Hmm. You got a pack of cigarette, you opened it, take out a cigarette, stick it in your mouth, set light to it. Job done. Yeah. Yeah. But think what you have to do with a pipe. A pipe, um, I mean, you, it's not just the pipe itself and the tobacco you've got to buy for the pipe. It's all the little cleaning rods and goodness knows what else. You would be walking around as a pipe smoker with your pockets full of all these bits and pieces. And eventually, a lot of people didn't want to do that. So the mm. cigarette was so simple. Now, we said 10 years ago, if you want more smokers to switch... The e-cigarette has to become really easy to use. Yeah. And of course, um, uh, that's what the disposable vape is. Mm. It's incredibly easy to use. Now, to ban them, would I think, would be a huge overreaction. I mean, I think there is an issue with them being used by children. I mean, the stories we hear from schools and from head teachers suggest that there is, is, is an issue. Mm. But the response is not to ban the product the response is to crack down on people who are selling uh, disposable vape or any e-cigarette yeah. or any age-restricted product, crack down on the sellers because these kids are getting them from somewhere. Mm. You need to bring in proxy purchasing ban as well. So if they're getting them from, you know, from adults, whether they're retailers or not, then there's a huge crackdown. Um, but you don't ban a product that is being used by a lot of adults mm. who uh, to help them quit smoking. I mean, if the government is serious about saying we want more adults to quit smoking, why would you ban a product that's actually helping people? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this. Uh, I mean, I can speak from sort of personal experience that um, I quit smoking earlier this year, um, and the first step of doing that was to purchase a disposable vape. I didn't want to have the initial financial outlay on a um, proper or permanent vape as it were um, but being able to pick up relatively affordably a disposable vape so I could try it I could see what it was like and decide whether that was for me or not um, and indeed I know a number of people who um, will on on a night out purchase a disposable vape because that's what they choose to do that's what they fancy doing um, and without them they in, in the past they would purchase a box of cigarettes for the evening and that they would then enjoy. So you have a, a sort of much safer alternative already available or, or a substantially less harmful one, as the uh, NHS says. Um, and there's, But there's still this sort of drive to, to ban them and indeed make it more difficult for people mm -hmm. to make the switch. Well, we live in a society where there are a lot of groups out there who want to ban things. Uh, it gives them a, a mission and a sense of accomplishment. I mean, that's their target. And if they achieve their target, they can tick that box and move on to something else. And it makes their campaign very clear. You know, if you want to introduce a little bit of nuance, it's harder to get your message across to uh, to the to the general public. So you end up with the general public supporting uh, these these uh, proposed bans, even the general public have probably not really looked into it um, to any great degree. 
So there's the school issue that does need to be addressed. Mm. But I say you don't address that by banning the product. You address it by cracking down on retail. Enforcing the existing laws. Exactly. I mean, why do we need more laws? I mean, that's the, the bizarre thing here. Um, we don't need more laws. We just need existing laws to be properly enforced. Just to round things off, um, we've obviously spoken quite a bit today about sort of personal choice and individual liberty, that kind of thing. Um, do you think there will ever come a point where the, for want of a better way of putting it, anti-choice uh, lobbies um, say enough's enough, we've, we've achieved what we needed to achieve? Um, or will we see this pattern of behaviour continue to the point where sort of you know, next perhaps it's sugary foods and drinks or alcohol, that sort of thing? How do you see that going? Uh, they'll never stop because it is now an industry. And if you're an industry, you've got to feed the industry. So they're never going to turn around and say, enough's enough, let's shut up shop and all go, go home. I mean, it's, it is a big industry. They employ a lot of people and they get a lot of money, often uh, taxpayers' money, I would say. And I think we should do more, um, all of us, to basically try and find out how much value. I know the Taxpayers Alliance has done some very good work uh, in the past, uh, finding out how much a lot of these groups get from mm -hmm. from government, um, and let's you know, actually have some valuations done on what uh, is the taxpayer getting value for money for the money that's given to to these groups. We're at the moment in the middle of Stoptober, which is this annual uh, quit smoking campaign. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much money they're getting at the moment from government, um, but we've tried to get their evaluation reports out to find out uh, you know where that money is going how it's being spent again does it offer value for money to the taxpayer their evaluation reports at the moment they still haven't produced an evaluation report um for 2022 right and yet we're in the middle of the 2023 mm. campaign i think the last evaluation report was for the 2021 campaign so if they haven't produced an evaluation report how do they then make their plans for their their next one yeah and so there's no account. Well, there seems to be very little accountability. And I think there needs to be much greater accountability in terms of how taxpayers' money is spent on a lot of these campaigns. But no, to answer your question is no, there's not a hope in hell that they will ever say enough's enough. Mm. They will always be looking for the next logical step. And that is why my argument has always been. It doesn't matter if you smoke or if you're a non-smoker. You've got to support adults who choose to smoke mm. because at the moment, smoke is an easy target, but one day it'll be something that you enjoy and ultimately comes out of this thing. Give adults freedom of choice. Line up all these products and inform the consumer about all the different, you know, all all the relative risks of all these different products, whether it's in to do with nicotine, whether it's to do with food, whether it's to do with alcohol. But have the confidence to let adults make up their own minds, and that's what we appear to be losing in this country. So, this is not by any means about smoking. It's much, much bigger than that. It's a, about allowing adults, giving them the freedom of choice and putting personal responsibility above all else. My thanks to Simon for joining us on this latest episode of TPA Talks. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and keep an eye out for the next episode. Thank you.